We've been using Karen Armstrong's book, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, as the underlying text for this sermon series. This week, our theme from her book is action. Now, I would imagine many of us have wondered why it's taken so long for us to get to action when we're talking about compassion. Because perhaps if you're like me, that's where we're most comfortable, the doing of compassion. Forget all this stuff about mindfulness, self-compassion, and empathy. We live in a do-have-be culture. And the work we've been talking about in this series is to create more of the be, do, have culture. In other words, we can only have the results of compassion in our lives if we work on our being first, followed by the doing. Not doing the work of compassion first and then trusting that we will become compassionate inside. It just doesn't work that way. Jesus knew this truth and taught it to the disciples in our text this morning. In the story, Jesus was traveling with his disciples and teaching them along the way. First, he taught them about how he would be betrayed, killed, and would, be, would rise again on the third day. The disciples didn't understand. They seemed fearful and disoriented. They had questions, but they were too afraid to ask, too afraid to engage Jesus further, too afraid to reveal their confusion. Compassion towards others beyond the group was just beyond what they could do. So they stayed quiet and withdrawn. Later, Jesus caught the disciples arguing with each other about who was the greatest. And when Jesus asked them about the argument, they stayed silent. Again, too ashamed to confess how they'd been jockeying for status. They retreated emotionally from Jesus, perhaps in embarrassment or even shame. That is the, the moment when Jesus chose to welcome the child among them and flip the power paradigm. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. In her book, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead, Dr. Brene Brown, famous author, college professor, sociologist, and TED, TED Talk sensation, talks about the only way to be in the world is through vulnerability. She defines vulnerability as the core, the heart, of meaningful human experience. Being vulnerable means being engaged with others, dropping the fears and facades that keep us apart. She says, I believe honest conversations about vulnerability and shame can change the world. Vulnerability is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Acting out of compassion, if done with the right intention, requires us to be vulnerable with one another about who we are and how we are, to be honest about our humanity. 
As we do that, we can get out of our own way and see the other person and to make life better, even if for a moment, for that person, to have compassion for them. If the disciples had been able to be vulnerable and share their fears with one another and with Jesus, perhaps they wouldn't have needed to have jockeyed for position to cover what might have been their deep shame or their fear over the potential of Jesus' abandonment of them. Then they might have been able to act with compassion and welcome the child that Jesus brought among them. In a sense, Jesus holds up the child as an example of what it means to be vulnerable, and perhaps the easiest of beings for whom we can find compassion. Think of the children in your life. Instead, they just stood around and missed out on deep connection with Jesus, with each other, and with the child. The same is true for us, isn't it? Sometimes we succeed in being real and vulnerable about our deep humanity, and sometimes we fail miserably. We fail at providing the compassion the other person needs and longs for. But the thing is that the failing is part of the learning. It's part of being human. Here's an example of how that worked for me one time. It's in a former congregation, I won't say which one, and Melinda, who's not her real name, was a woman who helped open me to offer her compassion, as reluctant as I was. In fact, she made the congregation I was serving at the time actually be church. She was about 10 years younger than I was and had been part of the congregation since my predecessor had been there. She was awkward in pretty much every way but it wasn't her fault. She was an adult who had grown up having suffered in every way with the repercussions of fetal alcohol syndrome. Actually, it was pretty much a miracle that she was still alive. Her condition distorted much of her appearance and actions. And I had been warned by some congregants when I first arrived at the church that she was very needy and could take all of my time if I would give it. I learned that Melinda had strained relationships with her very successful and wealthy brother and with her mother. Her mother died shortly after I arrived there and I did the funeral because they had no church connection. Melinda wore mostly wild, creative outfits and she spoke loudly, including being just a beat after everyone else in the unison saying of the Lord's Prayer during church, which really annoyed other people, including me. Her body odor made it difficult to be around her for long periods of time. And she demanded attention at the most inopportune times. But Melinda also had an innocence about her. She knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt, she was God's beloved. She called herself Star Baby, and she had the most creative ways of using bright colors on note cards that she would send to people. I so wanted to fully embrace her, to be compassionate to her, and I did that some of the time. 
But I found myself having an internal battle at other times when she called wanting me to come and visit, which was a lot. She was taking up much more time than other congregants, for sure. Still, my discomfort prompted me to look deeper inside, to see what was going on for me. Maybe I was uncomfortable because she showed me parts of myself which I found awkward, unattractive, unacceptable, unworthy of love and attention, and sometimes it was just too painful for me to face. Nevertheless, I went time and time again, sometimes reluctantly, and I sat with my own discomfort and awkwardness. And I was opened slowly more and more to my own vulnerability and the pain of feeling disconnected, as well as the ancient shame I'd carried since a child of feeling unlovable. Only as I sat and gave myself compassion did I begin to embrace more and more of the gifts she offered me. I felt as my own vulnerability, as I felt my own vulnerability, I was open to hers. Heart speaks to heart. Human being spoke to human being. One day during one of my visits, Melinda told me that she had just gotten a diagnosis that she had cancer and it was in advanced stages. My heart broke open more as I sat and listened to her. And I found myself having more compassion for who she was and how she was in the world. Others in the congregation started showing up more as well. She needed rides to treatment. Congregants showed up along with a long list of friends she had made at the hospital where she had volunteered over the years. She had even been given special access and entry to the hospital. Melinda's decline was rather quick when I think back on it. People rallied. Congregants came to her bedside and sang and danced as she had requested. I even joined in. I spent long hours in silence beside her bed all the way until she breathed her last breath. And it was a holy appointed time by God, sacred in every way. Overall, when I think back on it, it wasn't my finest time of compassionate ministry, for sure. I failed miserably at times. And even though my body showed up, my heart was not always there and open. Often I was acting out of the be, the do, be, have scenario, and it, it made me miserable to the core. Somehow the day in and day out acts of compassion which she wanted were too much for me over a sustained period of time until I was vulnerable and let myself feel the compassion I so desperately needed as well. The day in and day out relationship and compassion giving was and is difficult at times. It's sometimes been easier for me, I don't know about for you, 
to go to a community outside of my own, like we did several times here at Round Hill Community Church when I was here before, when we went all the way to Nicaragua and spent seven days building houses for, with people and for people, we, we went out on a limb. We, we had rice and beans, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We had bucket showers. It was grueling work. But somehow, knowing that the compassion was limited to that one week made it somehow easier. But that's not how life works, right? In this situation, God used Melinda to excavate old sludge buried deep inside of me and, to sh and shine the light on what needed healing in me day after day. I'm grateful to her and to God for having shown me these things. What in your life needs a sustained loving embrace so that you may be available to be more compassionate to others? In this chapter, Karen Armstrong doesn't call us to huge acts of compassion, although that will be the route for some. Rather, she calls us to the daily things which accumulate to a lifetime of living compassionately. She says, create small spots of time for others that may be, in the words of William Wordsworth, little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and love, she says. But what is our stance when we act? Are we acting from a place of self-compassion, as we heard at the beginning of the series? For if we don't have compassion for ourselves, once again, we don't reach in and uncover the things which we want to hide from ourselves and others, we cannot have true compassion for others. The two go hand in hand. Armstrong says the practices from each chapter that she introduces up to this point of action, including the self-compassion, built upon the next. And Jesus calls us to be compassionate within relationship to one another, and that requires vulnerability. The beauty is, shame dissipates when it's shared with someone else. And the vulnerability required to do that sharing requires that we have some level of self-acceptance and self-compassion at work. I love the charge at the end of Karen Armstrong's book chapter, in this chapter, to create a spot of time each day for others, and then to fulfill the negative version of the golden rule, which she says, do not do to others what you would not like them to do to you. Either in action or a snarky remark, she says. The idea is that if you're hurt by a remark, that embodying the practice of compassion will help you to see the other person maybe and probably is suffering too. So she says to catch yourself if you feel the urge to react, practice self-compassion in the moment, and then you can have compassion for the other. Perhaps the vulnerability of the disciples and how they failed so miserably time and time again is a gift to us all, showing us that being human is okay, that we all struggle to show ourselves and to bring the loving face, arms, and feet of Christ with one another. Be compassionate to yourself so we can do compassionate acts for others and then have compassion all around. May that be true for you and for me. May it be so. Alleluia. Amen.